podcast history. It is. <laughs> I enjoyed it actually. I have a lot of stuff I didn't know. Thank you. Yeah, I was lucky to. Um, the, the, I think the big doorway for me was growing up uh, in Western Massachusetts and being friends with Hahnemann Goldman, whose dad was Daniel Goldman, who was the emotional intelligence writer, who was in India. So the, the, all those guys who went to India in the '60s. It was you know Daniel Goldman and Joseph Goldstein and Jack and Sharon and that whole crew and Richard Davidson. Some of them went into the Dharma teacher world and some of them went into actually like science and journalism. So I, I always hung around his house and there was always books on Buddhism and I was always fascinated with, with, with what was going on over there. And so I, I kind of got lucky that that was my first, you know, I was, you know, 16 at that time. And then having some, a whole boatload of traumatic events in my early life and having another one when I was 18 um, and really just being kind of not able to function well, was able to, um, uh, with the help of uh, Hahnemann's mom, uh, who was also part of that crew, brought me to meet my first teacher, Stephen Smith, uh, at Insight Meditation Society. So we were driving to the Insight Meditation Society. It was me and Hanuman and Stephen Smith's daughter, Chandra, and we were in his car smoking this copious amounts of marijuana. <laughs> and the three-month retreat had just ended at IMS, so all the three-month teachers were at Joseph's house. It was Joseph and Sheridan and Steve Armstrong and Steve Smith and Mirabai Bush and... Everybody, basically. And I walked in just completely blown out of my face. <laughs> All of us were. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. And no one cared, which yeah. I thought was interesting. I was like, why do these adults not care? <laughs> they know? I think they knew. <laughs> and, uh, and then the next morning, I had this long conversation with Stephen Smith, who's actually taught here a bunch of times about the practice. And he uses this word a lot uh, in his teachings, if you listen to his talks, that people don't use a lot so much, and uh, this word dharma transmission. And what happens, I think, uh, in practice, and you've all had them before, where, uh, and I think it's actually the most, one of the most beautiful things about dharma practice, where, where we, it can be a meeting with a person, it can be a, a sit, it can happen on a retreat, it may be happening with some of you here, where you just... Uh, you have this sort of profound change in feeling and outlook. You just kind of get this uh, looking at life in a, in a different way, in a more contemplative way. And um, I, I, My first introduction to really Dharma was through a big, big transmission of that. I think I mentioned it the other day the first time, practicing and recognizing that my mind was a thing and that I didn't have to actually... It wasn't everything. And so I, I was really gung-ho for years from 17, 18, 19 through my early 20s. I sat retreats uh, every summer and I went to local Dharma groups and I practiced a lot. Um, but I also, I also was in, into music and I was also in played in band. So, so I like, you know, was, was really drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed, playing in bands. And I really wanted to have a career in music. Uh, but I also had this Dharma thing going on. and There was nobody my age who was interested in it, so it was kind of this private thing that I had. People would know that I'd go away in the summer, and they wouldn't really ask me about it so much. Um, so there was, it, was, it was hard because I had no, there was no community. Like the only, the, the, the only peers I had were the teachers or like Hahnemann's family who were like, you know, my parents sort of. So I didn't have anybody I could talk to about it. But I had lots of people I could talk to about drugs and alcohol with. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I ended up getting sober when I was 28. So I had this double life. I, would, I was really into the Dharma. I was really into playing in bands and into music. And I'm, actually, my career, music career went pretty well until I just totally bottomed out. 
2003. And I was jokingly telling, I don't know if I said this last year, but we were talking on the porch earlier. I was 60 days sober when I sat the three-month retreat at IMS. <laughs> which I don't recommend. <laughs> You know, I just was like, I'm just gonna get over, get over this, and um, and it was it was good, it was bad, it was everything that you can possibly imagine in three months, uh, and then I I left that retreat very very confused. Um, I just didn't know what to do. I was 28 years old. I just sat for three months, staring at my mind. I, you know, I, I had a lot of disappointment about having to give up my music career. Uh, I was living with my mom and dad. It was just really kind of um, it was rough. Um, and then I got really actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, because I just seemed to, there was a lot of people my age there. There was a, it was it was a sangha actually of sorts, and I really learned this thing in, in Alcoholics Anonymous that it was part of Buddhism that I never made the connection. This thing called sila, uh, integrity. Alcoholics Anonymous really taught me how to stop lying and to and to be in integrity with my actions and my speech and my sexuality and all all kinds of things. It really really helped me kind of get my shit together. Like it taught me how to like pay bills before they shut my electricity off, <laughs> stuff like that that I couldn't actually do. And then at, around that same time, I also read the book Dharma Punks, and that was how I got introduced to Noah Levine, although we didn't have much of a relationship at that point. I was just kind of happy to know that there was somebody in my Gen X world that was uh, teaching and practicing Dharma. And then after that, I, uh, I sat another retreat for two weeks, a year after the three months, and I would say for about five years after that, I kind of gave up on the Dharma. Um, I always liked it. I, always, I just was like, that's just not for me. I'm just... Uh, I just needed the sort of day-to-day... Seal uh, a practice of, of, of being an AA, and I, I ended up getting married, and I built a house, and I had a business, and I was kind of a, uh, a run-of-the-mill kind of, <laughs> kind of dude. Yeah. Although I was a slightly instructed world. Slightly instructed. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, after being sober for five or six years, and uh, ended up getting um, my wife, who was also an AA, ended up relapsing and, and cheated on me, and like left, and was this massive kind of. Uh, more or less traumatic event and I um, I started really sitting again and I started working in uh, alcohol, drug and alcohol treatment uh, program with teenagers I started working with teenagers um, this was about a decade ago now and I so I was really really sitting a lot, I was practicing a lot, I was doing AA I was, I was really, it was the first time in my life I really was interested in trying to uh, help people in a way. Uh, I, I was really good at it. It was one of those things I never wanted to be a counselor or a therapist. Or I, it was one of those jobs I just got a job because some dude at the AA meeting could get me a job at this treatment center. Like it was like there was no anything, and I just fell in love with the whole thing. I fell in love with working with teenagers, and I really I feel like a huge part of my internal teenager got healed in that process. Um, and I did that for a long, long time. I lived in Nashville for seven years I, I started doing training with Against the Stream I opened an, an Against the Stream meditation center in Nashville, Tennessee we had a huge thriving community um, recovery community meditation community uh, and then I just kind of hit a wall down there I think I hit a wall down there I got really um, I became really aware that I was living with very severe traumatic stress symptoms that were just starting to become very unbearable 
Um, I just wrote it off as dukkha, but it turned out I really had fairly severe uh, chronic PTS symptoms that I just learned to live with. Um, and I, uh, I didn't think that, I, I didn't want to have to keep living with those. So I really started, for the last two years I was in Nashville, Tennessee, I did uh, very, very regular and very, very intensive trauma therapy with, uh, with this woman, Dr. Lee Norton, who was just kind of a witch doctor, actually. And we would do, because I, because I was able to sit for so long, we never did trauma therapy sessions that were less than three or four hours. So we would do these three, we would basically do these trauma therapy daylongs at her house. Um, and so it was just super helpful and, and just, it was very psychedelic. <laughs> you know, it was like my heart was on acid most of the time. Uh, and I got to a pretty good place with that. I think I think I have some work to do there still, but I got to a, a really, really good place with that where I was really starting to have a deeper respect for, for Dharma practice and for therapy and really having a more open mind about like, oh, there's lots of ways actually to... And I think when you have a Dharma practice, a lot of the other psychological tools and therapeutic tools and stuff that the world offers integrated into Dharma practice is, is such a win-win. Um, and then I moved to Los Angeles, um, mostly because I, I just needed to get out of Nashville, not for any bad reason. It was just time to go. And moved to, moved to Los Angeles and started teaching more aggressively or not, just more regularly at Against the Stream and teaching retreats and and during this whole period of time, uh, be, being in teacher training and facilitator training in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, I became really hooked, and I became kind of a Dharma nerd. Uh, because when living in Nashville, Tennessee, it was very affordable. My, my monthly expenses were insanely low. I just didn't really have to work very much for like five or six years. You know, my mortgage was like $480 or something. I, I needed to make like 1200 bucks a month to, to survive. So I really was able to, I spent five or six years, I mean, I listened to Dharma talks daily. I sat every day. Sometimes I would sit for three or four hours a day. Um, I started working with Stephen Batchelor and some other, and Andrew Alinsky, and really trying to study Dharma more from an academic point of view. And I really, really, uh, it was all, basically I was sort of in this like homeschool Dharma university for like five years. Um, and it was really, I really enjoyed it. It was really a great time. And then when I got to Los Angeles, I felt like really I was at a really good place in my in my teaching career around really feeling like I uh, I had my practice was solid. Uh, I felt like my understanding of the teachings was very very solid, and um, and continued to to really teach there uh, and helped to set set up Refuge Recovery. Some of you are familiar with uh, the treatment center and the nonprofit organization. Um, in L.A. was a very, very strange time. It was sort of a mixed bag. Um, I would say it was a really, really... I wish I hadn't done that, despite the fact that I ended up uh, uh, getting together with my wife, Shannon. That was sort of the big... The one thing I... I went to L.A. basically, as my trauma therapist said, to get Shannon. Mm -hmm. It took two years to get her out of there, but it wasn't that hard. <laughs> um, so that was that was really really a benefit. And of course, you know I got in this really really uh, bad accident. But you know my practice history has, has been like I said, it's been very wonky. You know, I mean, I I was ten years, you know, like Cheryl actually going on retreats and drinking and stuff. It's very weird, isn't it? Yeah, that was my it was my it was my like sober living or whatever. Yeah. Like my detox. Detox. Yeah. So Dharma detox. Yeah. Detox. Yeah. yeah. So I've always. Um, 
like Cheryl, actually, I always struggled with the single object practice um, because of the fact that I mentioned the other night that it would tr- it would fl- it would trigger my fight flight. Um, and really, one thing I, that I appreciated about working with Noah Levine and Vinnie Ferraro and the Against the Stream was there was actually a really fairly big emphasis put on the, the Brahma Vihara practice. Uh, and so, so those two teachers, when I really worked with those two guys closely, there was a lot. I did a lot of heart practices, uh, very reluctantly at the beginning. Um, the classic phrase is, I, "I think I did compassion practice every day for about two years, maybe not two years, but a good year anyway." So that so so that was a nice switch. Um, you know, I and I and I've done. I worked. I went worked with Steve Armstrong again recently and did the, the Atejania ten day practice. Um, you know, I I have a very um, like even in this moment, like I don't really have a strong sense of. Uh, I think I've gotten to a point where technique is kind of uh, not that important to me so much. I would say that my really my big practice nowadays is, is, is being in family. I spent a great part of my adult life single, um, and so having having a wife and having a stepson and having a baby now has been a big, big part of my practice. One thing that my trauma therapist was big on that I that I was reluctant to that I actually agree with at this point is that I found that wherever your wherever your wounding or your suffering has taken place. The, the healing is going to have to take in the same place. So a lot of my, my suffering has been in, in relationship, uh, in, in around death and loss, uh, and around painful betrayal in romantic relationships, to the point where I was just like, I just don't want to be in, I definitely don't want to have a family. I definitely, I just, just, just leave me alone. I'll be fine. <laughs> um, and so it's actually been really challenging and important for me to um, and I live a half a mile from my mom and dad. So this whole family thing, which I spent decades trying to avoid, um, seems to be kind of my primary practice. So it's really this natural awareness and this kind of uh, how to bring mindfulness into daily life is, is, a, is a question that I, that I actually sit with almost every single day. Um, and so teaching has been, you know, I love teaching these retreats. This is actually, of all the things that I do in the year, this is probably my favorite thing to do. Because it's so, uh, we get the, such the rare privilege of actually being able to be mindful of all you guys go through what you're going through. And it's just like, it's, it's the best thing ever. To watch, just to watch, not so much watch you, but watch what happens. To watch the Dharma just move through people's experience. It's just like the greatest uh, gift. It's the greatest thing to observe. So I feel very committed to to teaching. Um, You know, I currently now am just teaching. I was working for an organization, a secular mindfulness organization called Mindful Schools for a little while, um, which didn't really work out, and I'm actually sort of glad it didn't work out. I'm not a great employee, it turns out. (laughs) I just like to do my own thing. Um, but um, yeah I just I I feel like it's really important to uh, be open and flexible and there's times in our lives like there was times in my life where I was single and I was really really studying the Dharma and I was getting really really a lot out of it and and, and things change right and I think that we 
I've learned that uh, there's a, a point in which, even though we talk about all this anatta stuff, but there's a point in which I think we have to have some kind of level of respect for our own subjective experience. And a lot of the work that I've done lately is in this program called Cultivating Emotional Balance, which is ironically was developed by Daniel Goleman and a bunch of other people. So, um, But really trying to develop this practice of what we call genuine happiness, which is really trying to balance the internal cultivation experience that we do here with actually the hedonic world. And really actually having some respect for, for what it is that you like and what, what are your interests and what are important to you. And, and, and I'm not going to shave my head and put on the brown robes. And can I participate in the hedonic uh, joy of the world in, in, in a way that feels genuine, that feels authentic? Um, because there can be this way in which dharma can become very dogmatic and we can start trying to live by some sort of lifted rules of something like some ancient list that we have to adhere to. Um, and so I think there's a way in which creativity is actually very important. Um, uh, trusting and, and enjoying the things that you enjoy and participating in the things that you enjoy is very, very important. Um, and really, this is and it's such a buzzword now, but I don't know another one, but just really trying to have an authentic uh, relationship to yourself where you're, um, you're participating in the things that are meaningful to you. Um, and you're learning how to, to enjoy life uh, and not turning into this litany of like trying to end suffering all the time and trying to um, become dogmatic about this stuff, which is really quite easy to do. And so one of the reasons that I've been so interested in this emotional work is that um, one thing that I, that I realize in, in, in my trauma therapy and in all of the uh, emotional intelligence work I've done sort of integrating Dharma into the world of emotion is that emotions lead to our greatest, greatest joys and our most painful sorrows. And for sure... The area of my life that I've suffered in the most is my emotional life. No doubt. And I always had the feeling that there was something, there was something about my experience that was just sort of wrong and bad. And I, I, I think I just suffer more than everybody else. Like, what? And it turns out I have emotions. <laughs> Which is such a relief. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and emotions are very uh, strange and difficult things to learn how to to navigate, and they really really keep us stuck, and and we can really get into these subtle destructive emotional patterns where we 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 talked about this a little bit like where we can have an actually destructive relationship to things like joy, you know, where we actually don't participate in the joy of the world because for maybe a wide range of reasons. And so Buddhism sometimes, and this happens a lot of times too, uh, it had with a big part of sort of the mentality of against the stream, which is, I think slightly destructive, where there's kind of too much acceptance of suffering. There's too much acceptance of the first noble truth. And there can be kind of this cynical, uh, angry way of operating where we just kind of like... Um, where like being happy is like not cool or something, or you know it's um, 
something like that, or it's it, it's a waste of time, or um, and we 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 cut off from that part of our experience. And one thing that I found about that a lot of times is because because it's actually we've been hurt in ways where we we maybe become scared of of joy. We don't want to be in relationships because they're too painful, or we don't want to participate in certain aspects of life because they're too painful, because that's been our experience. But we shut the door on that, you know. And suffering, uh, if you get this message, I hope you get it. It's not the end of the story. <laughs> you know, this whole we and Cheryl were talking about this other day. This, this whole thing is about happiness. This whole the whole point of doing any of this stuff is all about about happiness and a genuine happiness, and really actually trying to make the best of the conditions. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with really being true and honest to yourself and not letting the world talk you out of your happiness. Um, so I really feel like a big part of my practice has been cultivating joy and, and harvesting joy and... Um, really putting down my suspicion or my arrogance or my attitude around um, around that. And it's, it's, been, it's been a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, because I'll... Uh, I will... Um, I will happily suffer in silence for eternity. You know, and, I, and, and you can get too good at that. That's not, you don't get too good at that. Because if you get too good at that, you'll just settle for that. You know? And you can live in this kind of... Which is actually one of the near enemies. I talked about the near enemies of the Brahma Viharas. But there's actually a near enemy of wisdom. And the near enemy of wisdom is a kind of cynical attitude. And this kind of like dry, cynical, like, yeah, well, it's just all, you know, it's all just d dying and disappointing. Nihilism, yeah. So there's, there's, there's that, which is a very, very near enemy. And really not a great attitude. And, I, and I, I'm very familiar with that attitude. Um, so I find that um, participating in my emotional life in a way, uh, with, with, especially with, with, the, the, with the sadness and shame uh, and joy uh, and the kind of extreme aspects of those, um, it's sort of where I am at these days. Um, and I have a lot more access to my emotions than I used to, and I'm not always convinced that I'm so thrilled about that. <laughs> but, but Dharma seems to be really the best vehicle for that. And really trying to, trying to enjoy things. Um, yeah. I think that's all I have to say about that, mostly. Uh, questions? Huh? Yeah, let's see. Well, let's uh, start.